the Gospel of John. I want to begin a new series this morning entitled, Love, Good News to Believe in Jesus for Eternal Life, a study in the Gospel of John. And as we begin, as we kind of walk into this study today, which my my plan for the sermon today is to introduce this study to you and kind of uh, put on the forefront of your mind and heart why it is important and how it, that importance will come to light in our study. But as we do that, I, I want to begin to direct your mind in a right pattern of thinking, if you will, and consider with me how it is that love changes us. How is it that love changes us? Think about a time in your life that you can remember that you felt so loved that it moved you to act. What did you do because of that love? And and were you aware of or why did you do because you felt loved? You see, when we've been loved, when we feel most loved, we begin to give to others. And here's the reason why I believe love is all about giving. give you two verses, both from this same author, one from the Gospel of John and one from his epistle. But the first verse I would give you is this, and this is the reason why I believe love is about giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. Very familiar verse to many people. But if we go to 1 John, in chapter 4, verse 8, we learn this, that God is love. And if God, who is love, loved by giving, that is our definition for love. And that's the premise that I want to begin with today. God, who is love, gave as love. And when we are loved, we are released to give, to give ourselves away, to give through our life in order to show that love. And so as we begin this series of looking at love, this good news to believe in Jesus for eternal life, we're going to see that the whole of the Gospel of John is an act of love from the author himself who's been loved. And he reveals to us the greatest love of all. Turn with me to page 17 in this life book. I'm going to read from that today. And I want to read for us as we begin the first five verses of the Gospel of John. John records, In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, John's gospel account, the whole of the book of which we just read the first five verses, is the most unique of all the gospel accounts in the New Testament. He takes a completely different approach to how he tells the story of Jesus. And I'll unpack that a little more in just a moment. But the way that he writes provides for us some insight into the person 
of who he was as the author and his own personal understanding of Jesus. And here's what John is going to compel us with week after week, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, as we walk through this book, is just simply this, is that Jesus is God's love for all to believe and to receive eternal life. Jesus is God's love for all to believe and receive eternal life. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Gospel of John than just to preach through it. I'm introducing the book, so next week when we come back and begin to walk through it chapter by chapter, we'll have a little better understanding. But I want you to see this morning that from the book of John that John has written, the person who is writing and why he is writing what he's writing. I want to get to the action, the writing of the gospel, but I want to move behind that and see the author of the action and ask, why is John writing this book for us? Because when we see that, we're going to see three distinctives, not only of the book of John or the gospel of John, not only of the author, John himself, but listen to me, we're going to see three distinctives of the good news of Jesus Christ for every person who will believe in him. And that's where I'm headed this morning. Let's look at that first distinctive of John's gospel that reveals God's good news in Jesus Christ to us. The first distinctive is simply this, that we are beloved by Jesus. As I said, this book is written by John, who was a disciple of Jesus. And the book doesn't explicitly disclose his identity, but it provides enough indications for us from which we can conclude his identity. For instance, in chapter 21, in the very last chapter of the book, verse 20, we see after Jesus' resurrection, he's walking down the road with Peter, and John is following them. And Peter and Jesus are having this conversation. And in this conversation, it says that Peter saw the disciple whom Jesus loved in verse 20. And then it goes on to state, he actually asked Jesus a question about him. And then he goes on to state in verse 24 that this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And so John has his way of identifying who he is and that he's the author of this book, but he also tells us something about himself is that his nickname was he was the disciple that is loved by Jesus. I don't know about you, but if my name's going to be captured in this book, I know a lot of things that could be said that would be accurate of me. But none would be greater. And none would be earned by me, (laughs) only bestowed by God. For it to be said, you are the one loved by Jesus. That is a high honor. And that is the honor that was put on the, uh, uh, the disciple named John. John wrote his gospel account at an old age. So we're, we're hearing from an 
older man who's reflecting back over decades of his own life. He's writing to a people, the Jews, who are scattered throughout the world by this time. But he's writing them because the persecution has become so severe and and, and they've been scattered and these people are out. And he doesn't have any way, shall we say, that they're gathered anymore. So he's writing this gospel so it can go forth not only to encourage those who have believed, in Jesus, but also to speak to those who are the Jewish people to say, look, all of the law and all of the practices that you've remained faithful to all of your life find their fulfillment in this one person. He's an evangelist and he writes with a unique character and a unique knowledge of the events that he records. He writes, as you read and study the book of John, you'll see this detailed knowledge that really moves beyond some tradition of the day and and just what the other authors record. And his content and structure of the way he presents his information becomes very unique because he draws from a much more thoroughly researched or from more than just a thoroughly researched knowledge. But you move beyond to go, wow, he's not just talking about what he's learned. He's talking about what he's experienced. And that's why John is so unique. He writes from a deep, rich, personal experience of having walked with Jesus. Now let's look at the time that he walked with Jesus. John was one of Jesus' first disciples. The second, at the most, the third disciple that Jesus called when he began his public ministry. And we know that John stayed closer to Jesus than any other disciple. We know this because when he's uh, capturing those moments, Moments around the table when it's just Jesus and the 12 disciples uh, at the Lord's Supper or in those times of eating and, and those intimate conversations, John is the one identified as reclining against Jesus. And so in that day and time, they would sit on the floor around the table and you know, you lean on this arm for a while and it goes dead, and you lean on this arm for a while and it gets numb, and you have to keep shifting your weight. But it was very common that one in a closeness of relationship would actually just lean back against the other as they conversed around the table and as they enjoyed their meal together. And it says that John is the one who leaned and reclined against Jesus. John is the one that followed Jesus further into his trial and crucifixion than any other apostle did. The gospel account records that when Peter, around the fire, was being accused of being a disciple and a follower of Jesus. And when he just lit out into a cursing tirade against the poor girl that said it to him, John was the one that watched him from a short distance, silently, but he had been watching all along as Jesus was led to his crucifixion, as he was beaten, as he was taken and wrongly sentenced to death. Even when the last disciple ran away, Peter himself, John was there watching the accounts. What brought him there? His love. His love for Jesus. He was also one who uh, was charged by Jesus. The scriptures tell us when Jesus hung on the cross, he looked down and John stood next to Mary. And he said, take care of my mother. He would not have said this to a stranger, but only to the most intimate of friends that he had. It is John who records that towards the end of the day when it came time 
for the prisoners to be dead because they needed to get them off of the cross. Jesus was already dead. They didn't have to break his legs. But out of sport, the Roman soldiers decided that they would thrust a spear into his side to make sure that they pierced his vital organs. And when they did, John records that blood and water flowed from his side. This is a young man who had been deeply impacted by the life that he had just watched, unjustly led to sentencing, to crucifixion, to death. And even when they knew he was dead, they still were brutal towards his body. And he watched this. Three days later, John was the first to arrive at the empty tomb. And it says that he outran Peter... And he arrived at the tomb first, but he couldn't go in. It's one of those moments when it's just too much. He knew Peter wouldn't even stop long enough to think about it. He would rush in, so I'll wait. But he got there first. John knew Jesus when others missed him. You see, John's presence throughout the gospel narrative shows that he was in Jesus' most intimate circle of friends. And that's how he came to receive the title, the nickname of the one loved. John was beloved. And that not only distinguishes the writer here, but it distinguishes his writing. You see, some speculate that John was the youngest of all of the disciples who were called. Maybe as young as 14 or 15 years of age when he was called to follow Jesus. Can you imagine? Moms, how many of you can just let your 14-year-old move out and go to the mission field because Jesus called them? Um, we're going to wait, right? <laughs> That's what my mother would have said. Um, maybe later. 14 or 15 years old when, when he was called. So no wonder he was so formed and shaped and impacted by Jesus. Because for three years, the most formative years of his life, he was living next to the Son of God. He was originally a disciple of John the Baptist, but when Jesus came onto the scene and John identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, then he transitioned his loyalty from following John the Baptist, as John would have had it, to follow Jesus and his ministry. There are so many things we could say about the Apostle John that are, uh, shall we say, um, characteristically complementary of him. He was a great great man of God and surely at an advanced age of life reflecting back on the decades of his life that he had been walking with Jesus he was seeing this in his own life but hear me friends John was not called beloved because he earned Jesus's love and John was not called beloved because he proved that he was worthy and so Jesus in some way had to bestow that love on him because of his own worth Rather, you should know a little bit about John. As I said, he was a teenager. There were some characteristics of John that were teenagery, or just immature, maybe, that we keep beyond our teens. John was known as a son of thunder. That was his nickname before beloved came to qualify him. Along with his brother James, 
They were sons of Zebedee. He had such a temper that was often uncontrolled and always showed itself. So you might say this, that where Peter had a mouth and every time silence fell, Peter broke the silence with words. John had the same opportunity and though silent, anger is what came out of him very often. He was aggressive Overly so, he had a lot of anger. If he lived today, very likely with the reputation of his temper as a son of thunder, he'd be labeled with anger issues and need some help with that. Luke 9.54 tells us that John, along with James, were walking with Jesus one day and, and the brothers, they came into a Samaritan village. And they began to preach good news in the Samaritan village. And the Samaritan village as a whole rejected them. And John and James turned to Jesus and said, You want to just call some fire down right now and wipe them out? We'll just incinerate them right now. I'm not going to put up with that. Listen, we love you and we want you to know Jesus. But you've got five, four, three, two, one. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, John wasn't playing around. That's the way John was thinking. Look, we're, we're either going to win you over or we're just going to dominate you. I mean, that's the, that's the choice here. And that's the way he thought and the way he acted. His reputation as son, son of thunder was so severe that many scholars and critics claim that there is no way John could have written the Gospel of John because the theme of love in his Gospel and in his epistles is so strong it could not have come from someone who was noted as so wrathful and emotional. Just, this guy could not have written this gospel. This guy could not have penned this letter because the theme of love is too strong. Someone this angry could not have written this deeply about love. What I want you to see in this first distinctive, not only about the gospel of John, not only about the author, John himself, but more importantly for you and I today, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, John's writing set against his reputation demonstrates why he was called beloved and what he most wanted people to know, that God's love through Jesus Christ radically changes lives. Radically changes Lives and, and John reminds us as the beloved, thank goodness that Jesus doesn't write us off because of our flawed personalities, right? Thank goodness that Jesus doesn't dismiss us, do away with us, or help us call down fire immediately because of our transgressions and our shortcomings and our weaknesses. Praise Jesus that he doesn't measure us by our flaws, but he loves us just as we are with them. Praise God that we're not imprisoned forever when our weaknesses and our sins overrun our strengths and our potential to serve God's glory. Can you imagine, can you imagine what this aged man must have thought when he remembered with immediate vividness? What must Jesus have thought of me when I wanted to call down fire and incinerate those Samaritan people? And been broken in that moment. But then in beholding the love of God in his life. Blossoming with a joy. Because of the way God had loved him. As the beloved. You see friends. God knows where you're at today. God sees you. He knows you better than you know yourself. 
He knows your doubts and your speculations that you may have sensed you needed to put in the lower level drawer to hide them a little more deeply so no one senses them today. But God knows perfectly where you've placed them and He knows perfectly why they are in your life. He knows all the insufficiencies, the insecurities, the weaknesses, the transgressions and the sins that have riddled your heart and your mind. He knows the wandered direction that you are prone to follow when you look away from Him and when you speculate about he, whether or not He is real. He knows you. For before you were knit together in the womb in your physical being, God knew you. And He loved you. God knew John. His weaknesses and his shortcomings, his sin and his propensity to do wrong, and he loved him still. God didn't leave John in his sin, but he rescued him because he loved him and he radically changed him. Friends, that's real love. God loved John out of the embarrassment of his sin to become the beloved Not because John was unique or special, but because that's the way God loves. And that's the first distinctive of the gospel. God doesn't wait to love us. He doesn't wait for us to get cleaned up, fixed up, sobered up, calmed down, or cooled off. One even says this of of commenting on the gospel of John as a whole, is that the initiative in salvation does not come from the sinner, but from God. You see, your relationship with God did not originate with you, friends. And we'll talk about this a little more deeply in regards to faith and where it comes from in just a moment. But what we need to understand is that God is love. And because He is love, He gave His only begotten Son, God has come after us from all eternity past that we might know Him and know His love in this relationship. John doesn't depict a God who is kindly enough disposed towards sinners to accept them if and when they will reach a point at where He can tolerate them. God's not waiting for you to get to that level of toleration so He can accept you. Rather, He's diving into the depths of the abyss of our sin to bring us out. And John reveals a God who loves people even horribly sinful, broken, inconceivably ugly people so much that he seeks them out to save them and to rescue them for himself. That's what John is telling us and that's what his label of the beloved reminds us that in Jesus Christ we become the beloved no matter where we begin. God doesn't wait for sinners at all. God sent Jesus to show his love for us first. You see, John was a man deeply changed by Jesus' love. And he tells us that Jesus is God's love for all who will believe and receive eternal life. Friends, have you believed God's love is for you? Do you believe that today? Not theoretically that God is love. And not maybe even practically that God loves others or some. But pressing it all the way in. With all the reality of who you are and the worst 
of your transgressions against God. God loves you. God wants you to believe in Him that you might become the beloved by Him. There is a love that changes your life. And John is writing as a man who's had his life changed by this love that everyone that reads his account might be changed by that same love. The second distinctive I want you to see today of this gospel is this, that we can believe in Jesus for eternal life. This is John's aim in his gospel. He makes it clear. Chapter 20, verse 31, he says this, But these things are written, talking about the whole of his book that he's written here, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John didn't write his gospel account so all people would just know more about Jesus. But he says, I am writing these things so that people will believe that Jesus is the Christ and in him receive the life that only he gives. John presents Jesus in a very unique way, as I mentioned earlier. I want to unpack that a little more for you. You see, John presents Jesus not just as a historical figure, but that's very important. But John does more than that. Luke and Mark present Jesus as a historical figure, and this aspect of Jesus' humanity they present. Luke writes to more of a Hellenistic mindset, and in that mindset, those people would celebrate the heights of humanity and the achievements that were achieved, whether it's through the arts or the sciences or whatever the case may be. And so what Luke does when he writes, he reveals this Jesus as the supreme image of all humanity, the the great son of man he uses to qualify him. And Mark writes to an explicitly Roman mindset. And Roman was like, they were like the first power team members. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the Roman centurions, they were bad dudes. And any great feat of strength was one that they all were going to have to try. I mean, redneckness is direct descendant of Roman centurionism because, hey, watch this, is that's just what they were constantly doing. And so when Mark writes his gospel account, as I've mentioned several times, he doesn't mess with details. He just gets to the bam, you know, and then Jesus showed up and they did this and bam, that's what happened. You know, I mean, that's the characteristic of the way he writes because he shows Jesus as the ultimate superhuman. Now, when you come to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew reveals Jesus not just as the historical figure, but as the incarnational God. And listen, this is most important, but it's distinct from what John does. Matthew focuses on this as he writes to Jews, and he's proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom in Jesus. And so there is a very similar nature to Matthew's writing, but throughout the gospel of Matthew, he speaks of the kingdom of God that has come. And when Jesus announces his presence and his public ministry, it's the kingdom of God is here. 
And so he's announcing this fulfillment, but it is showing that God has come to us in the incarnation. But when John presents Jesus, he goes beyond just the historical figure, just the incarnational God, to show that Jesus is the resurrected Christ. In other words, Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the head-crushing heel of Genesis chapter 3 that was struck but was not not torn down and has ultimately overcome the evil one in all of his ways. You see, when John writes of Jesus, he says, this is the promised Messiah that God has foretold you of for so long and all that you've known and all that you've practiced in your religion and not in a bad way necessarily, but just in knowing God, all that you've known and practiced is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate, not only of a historical person, not only of the incarnational God, but now as the ruling and the living Christ of all things. And he writes that we might believe. I I love this, this phrase from one commentator who said, but what is at stake? Speaking of the, the angle with which John writes, the, the very spirit and tenor of his words, here's what's at stake in the fundamental insight of the way John writes is that it's not faith that produced the story. This is not an aberration that John is having in his later years. Well, he was a little cuckoo and off his rocker, And that's what he wrote. No, no, it's not faith that produced the story, but the story that produced faith. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel, friends. That it brings to life in us what does not originate with us, but is put within us by the one who lives in us. The story of God who has come as the Christ brings faith that we might believe and receive. This, friends, is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' love led John to write so that we might believe and receive. He presents Jesus by demonstrating the revelation of God's promised Messiah, the Christ, so that people might believe. And this, friends, is where faith originates in the seeing and the beholding of Jesus as the Christ of the living God who has come to save. We don't just believe in Jesus because we choose to or not to, but we believe in Jesus when we behold who he is And in the understanding of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, we place faith in him that he has put in us. Listen, we believed a lot of things in this world under the auspices of Christianity. A lot of principles have been preached to give you a better life, a better marriage, better performance at your job, better this, better that, and better everything else. And some of those have actually improved your life, but they've not radically changed it because not too long in, either you stop practicing those principles or those principles begin to fail where they once were better at performance with you. But friends, that's not the same in the intellectual ascent to principles as it is in the exalted Christ that brings faith unto eternal life within us. 
And that is what John is saying that the love of God does for us. John reveals Jesus as the Christ of God that we might believe in him and receive life. Now let's talk about believe versus faith for just a moment because it's another distinctive characteristic of John's gospel. John uses the verb for believe without using the noun for faith and instead of speaking of faith. He's not bypassing faith. He's not saying faith is not essential for salvation, but rather he's showing the action of that faith instead of the possession of it. The word that he uses in the Greek language is used 241 times in the New Testament. 231 of those times is translated believe. The other 10 times, it's either translated uh, in trust or in trusted or faith twice. So, in other words, 231 of 241 times, this word is translated as believe, faith in action, if you will. 98 of those times, John uses this verb. That's three to four times more than any other gospel writer. In the Acts of the Apostles or of the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, it's used 37 times. Almost three times more John uses it. In the book of Romans, when Paul writes his treatise on salvation, he uses this verb 21 times. And when you study ancient literature, the words that they use and the number of times they use them and the ways that they use them demonstrate what they are genuinely saying. It's a, it's a legitimate method of study and understanding. And what John is saying to us is, look, I don't have time for faith to be something you possess. I need you to get that your faith ought to possess you and move you to action. That's what believe is all about. And that's what John's telling us. Believe holds a central importance in John's understanding of the gospel. When he said, all of these things have been written so that what? You might believe. You see, the question he's putting right in front of our face this morning is this. Are you possessing your faith or are you living it out? Are you claiming you hold to something or are you living on something that's holding you? That's the difference that he's speaking to us. Faith that never becomes believe is a worthless waste of time. I don't care how many Christian mantles that you set the trophy of faith on. I don't care how many curio cabinets, well lit, perfectly displayed, that you put your faith in. If it doesn't move you to action to believe and live it out, it is a worthless heap of uselessness in your life. And it may actually be misleading you more than helping you. You may hold faith today, but it makes no difference until it holds you to believe. And it is a waste to speak of possessing it without exercising it. Faith makes a horrible collectible to have and to hoard. The only reason to have faith is to exercise it in believing. And so we have to ask, what is it that John's wanting us to believe? What is it that John is wanting us to take faith and move it into action? Is it that Jesus was God? Well, yes, but it's more than that. Is John moving us to believe that Jesus was human? Yes, but it's more than that. That, hear me, Jesus is the Christ. He was sent from God as his promised Messiah. Yes, the first two are important, but they can mask faith in intellectual propositions, and that can be satisfied by a stagnant cognition. That's not what we want here. It's not just an exercise of the electrical synapses firing in the gray matter of your cranial cap. 
gravity here. Rather, it's what moves from here to here that it might move these to move you forward in life. And you might walk in such a way that the word of God has become real to you. It's become life in you and you live by it living in you. That's what John is saying to us, and that's what we must get. We've got to move out of a cultural Christianity that allows us to wear any label we choose to wear and to think that we're doing something because of who we hang around with, even some of the propositions that we claim to believe. If belief haven't changed the way we live, we've not believed. That's what John's trying to get across to us. Believe that you might receive eternal life. But when you believe that Jesus is the Christ of the living God, faith must move from the mind to believe in all of life as worship and as obedience. Jesus is the Christ. God has come. He is with us. He is among us. He is here to save us. Jesus is God's love for all to believe and to receive eternal life. I just, I put this in front of you as John would want. Have you believed in Jesus to receive eternal life? The third distinctive. Not only are we beloved by God in the gospel. First, not because of any merit of our own. Not only can we believe in Jesus that we might receive eternal life, but the third distinctive is this, friends, that we are beloved in order to love others. John is the beloved who writes from a relationship of love in order to show love. And when we remember God's love and when we live out of our relationship with God, we are best prepared and motivated to share God's love. Here's John's overarching testimony, not only in what he says, but through what he says and what he has done to demonstrate to us. Here's his testimony, that God's love in Jesus changes everything. That's, what, that's, the, that, that's the, the chorus that continues to resonate in the back of his mind. It's just, man, God's love changes everything. But first, and most of all, when I believe it changes me. It changes me. It changes who I am. It changes why I live. It changes how I live and what I do and what I say. And it changes why I show up where I show up at. It changes what I want to accomplish with this life. When we were in seminary, the pastor of the church that we attended told this story. I've told it a couple of times through the years. And it's so appropriate. He, he, he recounts a scenario where a couple came into his office for marriage counseling. And when they came into his office, they were broken. And uh, they, they just said, Pastor, we constantly fight about everything. We can't get along with anything. We don't agree on anything. And we don't want to, but we believe we're going to have to get a divorce because we've got to have some peace in our life. And he said, well, you agree about something. And and they were like, yeah, it, he was almost perplexed and taken back how much agreement there was in the conclusion that they had drawn. And so, both in agreement over their ability to get along and not fight and love each other, he said, uh, he began to ask them a few questions. And while they talked, he expected that he would find some point 
that he could provide counsel to help work through their problems. But he said every time they answered, they agreed that they were totally in disagreement. And no, no point ever arose. And he just simply was kind of perplexed. And he said, do you want a divorce? Is that what you want? And they replied, what we want is peace. But we don't know what else to do. We're miserable and we don't love each other anymore. So the pastor said he could think of nothing at that moment. And as he was just praying, God help me, what am I supposed to tell these people? In that moment, the Spirit just simply said, do this with them. And he said, if you're going to get a divorce, I'm going to ask you to stay that decision for a month. And every day over the next month, morning, noon, and night, vow that you will pray one thing to God in your life. God, I don't love this person. I don't like this person. But if you would be gracious to me to love this person through me in the way I talk, in the way I act, and all that I do, so that you can show me how you love them, through me until I come to love them. And he said after four or five weeks, the couple came back and all their problems didn't go away. Everything didn't get fixed. They had not gotten a divorce and at that point were still not planning to get a divorce. And things were improving. And so they said this to him. They listened and they let God work in their marriage. And they later told him that when we began to pray that God would love the other person through us, we both thought that God would change the other person. But we came to realize he changed me. See, friends, when we live in God's love, we will live to show it and to share it with other people. Love cannot be contained, it must be shared. When it's shared, it gets multiplied. But love that gets harbored withers, fades, and dies. When we forget God's love, we live out of fear and insecurity and isolation. When we forget God's love, we defend ourselves very quickly and we easily dismiss other people. When we don't feel God's love, we don't show His love to others. When we don't trust God's love for us, we wander from God and we begin to accuse others. The hardest people in the world to love are the people who do not feel loved. Why? We're the hardest to love when we feel and believe that we are unloved. When we forget the gospel. When we remember how much we've been loved, only then will we be ready and able to love others. You see, loved people love people. And that's what John is saying to us. This is the mission of John's gospel that every Christian must embrace. That the one who is most loved is best prepared to love so others may believe. Christian, if we're going to love the world the way God has called us to love the world, the only way we will ever attempt it surely to proceed forward with it is to stay close to Jesus, to never forget that through the gospel, God has loved us. It will not be a perfect life. We know that. Why? Because we're present. But it will be a loved life. And in that love, we will live that we might love others the way we've been loved. 
Christian, you are God's beloved in Jesus to go and to love others.